Ladies and gentlemen, to another bonus episode of What's the Res. We here at What's the Res are normally dedicated to hosting the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. But of course, occasionally, uh, we take a break from that and we bring you a different kind of discussion. Today is going to be one of those different kinds of discussions where we're going to discuss a recently deceased controversial conservative philosopher. His name is Roger Scruton. Uh, I've been a fan of Scruton for several years now. I've read three of his books and was quite sad uh, on January 12th of 2020 to learn that Sir Roger has passed into eternity. And this past week, I discovered that a couple of my friends through the Faulkner University PhD program are also huge fans of Scruton. So we thought it might be kind of fun to get together and do sort of an in-memoriam episode dedicated to Sir Roger and the ideas that he came up with and the books we've read by him. So uh, with that, I'm going to toss it over to Nick Kennecott. Nick, please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Nick Kennecott. I live in Savannah, Georgia, married to Felicia. I have three children. I'm the pastor of Redeemer Baptist Church, uh, the author of In Praise of Old Guys, and a uh, Ph.D. student also at Faulkner University and one of the uh, co-hosts of Wrath and Grace Radio. Fantastic. Landon, how about you? I'm Landon. I am a hospital chaplain in uh, Missouri. I'm married, have two children, and a Norwegian elk hound, and I'm a student at Faulkner uh, working on my working on my PhD in humanities. Wonderful. And my name is Josh Herring. I'm a PhD student uh, also at Faulkner University, and I'm also a dean of students and humanities instructor for Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. And I'm uh, one of your regular hosts here on What's the Res? Uh, just in case we've picked up any new listeners with this episode, please do feel free to check out our normal episodes, where we are normally focused on analyzing the current resolutions for high school debate. But with that, let's get into it. Uh, gentlemen, let's, let's see what we can come up with. I did a little bit of biographical reading on Sir Roger before we got together, but uh, let's see what we can construct real quick. Uh, who was Sir Roger Scruton, and why does he merit our attention? All right, can I start us out? Please do. We're, we're all in this whole conversational PhD program, so I didn't want to put too yeah. many like restraints or too much structure yeah. on, hey, let's do a rotation, but let's, let's just <laughs> yeah. make it work. All right. Well, I mean, Scruton, he merits our attention because he was everything that you could possibly want in a public intellectual. And public intellectuals, great ones, are increasingly rare these days. He was skilled as a philosopher. His books are full of very rigorous arguments. He was widely and well-read in a whole number of fields. Uh, It's really amazing. And when it comes to art and music, he had this profoundly cultivated sensibilities. And uh, on top of all this, he cared as much for the form of a philosophical essay as he did for the content, which 
resulted in these really elegant books, uh, very beautifully written. Again, something increasingly rare, especially among professional philosophers. And so I, I appreciate him for all those reasons. Um, and also just because he, he had profoundly human concerns. He was concerned about the sorts of things that professional philosophers today often leave to the side, even though they're central concerns to philosophy in the most robust sense, you know, like beauty and uh, social and political concerns. Um, he was interested in human life. He's interested in human beings and their experiences and what makes us good and what makes our world beautiful and what makes our lives meaningful. So. Yeah. I, Glenn, I, I think great, great thoughts there. I would add to that, that uh, something that's so unique in many ways about Scruton, especially uh, leading up to his, his death in the last, uh, in the 21st century is his, his willingness to, to stand on what he understood to be the truth of certain issues that are so contrary to what is so common in uh, in the public intellectual space, by and large, uh, his ideas about conservatism, his ideas about uh, preserving and renewing uh, and and taking back uh, culture and things like beauty and architecture, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, having a, a religious foundation and, and uniquely Christian foundation to the things that he was saying and doing. Uh, all of these ran very contrary uh, to uh, to the ideas uh, that are so common. Uh, and and he deals he deals often with the academy. He deals with the, just the public uh, intellectual space in general. Uh, but all all of this sort of comes out of uh, him becoming uh, a conservative out of the the Paris riots in in sixty eight uh, when he saw everything that was going on there and and this this push this drive uh, with a, a very strong Marxist ideal. Uh, and and talking to his friends who were a part of that and and realizing they really didn't have anything of substance to say about why they were supporting these things, uh, why they were in favor of these things, but just that uh, they they liked Marxism because in in essence they were told to, and uh, they weren't thoughtful, they weren't thinking through the ideas, and so that's something I, I wish people really understood about Scruton is that he was uh, he was deeply thoughtful all throughout his life, and and that's recorded in his books, and he took some very unpopular stands, not because he was trying to be controversial, but because these things were right, and he believed them firmly, regardless of the outcome, and and he faced controversy many times uh, throughout his lifetime, and and lost a lot of support uh, on some of the stances he took. So I, I really appreciate him for that. That in a day when, uh, when there are very few people in the public space who have a backbone in the midst of uh, cancel culture. I think uh, Nick, you bring, Nick and Landon, y'all both bring up some great points. Uh, Landon, to kind of follow up on the uh, the accessibility of Scruton, I love the fact that in the even though he wrote like uh, respectable, dense philosophy like The Face of God and The Soul of the World and uh, a myriad of other books. Uh, I think I read one site saying he had 50 total books, not just articles, but full manuscript books uh, on his CV before he passed away. But he also... Uh, he also wrote a wine column, and apparently uh, he wrote reviews of different tobaccos. And, well, <laughs> uh, he was sought after by, <laughs> by different uh, companies because uh, he was he saw himself as an aesthetics guy, and he thought that both wine and tobacco were part of good aesthetics. So he was, and everything I've read by him, I've 
The ideas are profound. He's also incredibly accessible. And yeah. I, it just, I think it's one of the hallmarks of the, the public intellectual to maintain that accessibility while also doing nuanced philosophy. But yeah. the, the current, uh, the, the press when he died did not really know what to make of him because he's one of the few people in philosophy that has sort of name recognition in, in intellectual circles of people who are still living. But I, I read the Guardian's obituary, and they Nick they talk about that same moment during the uh, the Paris riots. But they literally, it's as if they were damning him with praise. They admit that he's this conservative thinker, but they feel a need to then condemn him for being a conservative thinker. But he he was knighted in 2018. But then they have to, and then they recounted one of the last controversies where he was on a uh, an architectural review right. board, right. but. Then there was a, a journalism article that accused him of anti-Semitic remarks and racism against Chinese people that had taken statements he made in a public interview completely out of context. As soon as the recording was released for that, that actually revealed what he had said and it, as at all the time, everything he did, it makes sense in context. He's very difficult to really disagree with in the sense that you can't fault the logic with which he speaks. But then, uh, so he was eventually kicked off of that board and then reinstated, but the Guardian can't really condemn, they can't bring themselves to actually condemn the shoddy journalism that <laughs> came to this. So I, he is so fascinating uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Josh, I want to make a, a point about his accessibility. There's a quote that I underlined in Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands. He uh, said one book. Book, yeah. one book he wrote as a provocation and not merely as a, a set of philosophical arguments. But he says this, the reader of philosophy must be must beware of frauds who exploit the known difficulty of the subject in order to disguise unexamined premises as hard-won conclusions. And he said that in reference to Michel Foucault. Oh, and, that's so uh, good. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's just something that I, I have a never-ending appreciation for. Which uh, I his, Fou his, his ability is so bad. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, your uh, Josh, your your listeners will uh, likely be familiar with Edmund Burke, and 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 that's something I think we all appreciate uh, about Scruton is this isn't this isn't him coming at things from a unique perspective, but because he is conservative, he's seeking to conserve something, and it's building on this tradition and standing upon the shoulders of men like Edmund Burke. Um, and and in that line, uh, Russell Kirk and and others that uh, would fall right in line there. So uh, he is thoroughly Burkean in in most of what he uh, believed and yeah. what he wrote. And I, I I would like to think that most of our listeners do know Burke, but I suspect that that uh, is unfortunately not the case. Um, uh, so I would probably summarize Burke. Uh, he was an English uh, statesman in the 18th century who was wrote a famous letter. He called it a letter, but it's about 250 pages where he is responding to the events of the French Revolution. And in doing that, uh, he wrote a defense of the traditional English way of life and criticized the French Revolution and the Enlightenment intellectual movement leading up to it. 
And really, he he is the he laid the foundation for the intellectual tradition of conservatism as an attempt not to simply be sticks in the mud and fuddy duddies who are rejecting change, but rather to articulate a political orientation towards conserving a tradition and a set of traditions rather than simply looking to spark revolution, which is where I would definitely put Scruton. I, I don't think he's. I mean, you can't read him and think he's an intellectual simpleton. He's also, but he is definitely not looking to, he's not looking to be terribly innovative, but at the same time, he wants to ask sincere questions and propose real answers while bringing to bear all the resources of the tradition of thinkers who go before him, which is where I think I would see him sitting in that Burkean tradition. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple important aspects of Burke's thought that I think are uh, particularly formative for Scruton's own thought. And that is, uh, first of all, that Scruton saw conservatism as fundamentally a um, a conception of ourselves as trustees of an inheritance. Yeah. And that inheritance can be our cultural inheritance or the political institutions that we have, especially in countries where those allow us you know, certain freedoms and certain privileges. Um, but also of like the natural world, his book, um, on in environmental conservatism. That's the whole thesis of the book. And uh, so we see ourselves primarily as trustees whose obligation to preserve the best of the past is grounded in our moral obligations to future generations, which is really interesting. It's a thought he draws from Burr. And then also, when it comes to Scruton's political philosophy, over and over and over again, he thinks part of the genius of conservatism is that it always brings people back to their concrete particular affections, to the love that they have for real things, not abstract ideals like you see, for example, in the French Revolution that Burke commented on saying, you know, brotherhood and fraternity and equality, this is all great, but when your abstract ideals are guiding you, then it leads you to do all kinds of uh, particular concrete terrible things. <laughs> And there's a sort of paradox there. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that we can we can justify so much in the name of humanity without caring for the actual people nearby. And Scruton seemed to have this very this sincere concern for local issues, local concerns, uh, not so much focused on humanity and mankind at large, but more focused on what are the local needs of a town. And my understanding is that that also drove his emphasis on architecture and the connection between aesthetics and architecture to the needs of the people who are actually going to use that architecture. Have either of y'all read much of his stuff on architecture or, or aesthetics in general? Because I've not read nearly as much as I'd like to in those areas. Yeah, well, one of the things that uh, that Scruton believes is that buildings um, it should be beautiful, that they should represent or resemble the architecture of the past, especially of the Greco-Roman culture. Um, and and one of the contentions he makes is that beautiful buildings change their uses. Um, and, and the buildings that are functional, architecture that's functional, it's created for a very specific use. Uh, it just gets torn down and, and something else replaces it. And so uh, if, if you think about the old, uh, if, if you guys have been to, uh, to England at all, you go down through the streets of London and, and many of those buildings are repurposed many times over because you have this beautiful architecture uh, that has been built up to create small communities within the larger city. 
And so you see things like old church buildings that are now being used. Sadly, uh, they're not churches anymore often, but they are, they are superior architectural uh, creations and as a result are still able to be used as something else, to be repurposed, to become an office, to become a restaurant or whatever it is, uh, versus things that are, are so abstract and so functional uh, that we've lost anything of, uh, of in- endurance. And so that was one of the things that he really pressed on uh, a great deal in terms of architecture was the idea of, of endurance. And, and one of the reasons why, Josh, you brought up earlier that just a few years ago he was on this architectural committee and uh, why they didn't like him was because he was saying, you know, you look at things like postmodern architecture and it's just, it's, it's garbage. Not only is it not functional in any real sense, uh, it, 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 so much of it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even serve a purpose at all. It's just there uh, to confound and confuse. And, and it doesn't really serve a purpose uh, in itself, let alone to have any kind of enduring use that can be repurposed in the future. So uh, j- just on the surface, that's one of the, one of the main things that he really emphasizes when it comes to architecture. I know in his uh, in in uh, the collection of lectures he gave the, the Gifford lectures in 2010 titled "The Face of God," he has a chapter on uh, face of architecture, and he made there a fascinating argument. I've not been able to get out of my head ever since, and uh, he maintains that in uh, the classical era, Greece and Rome, the idea was that or the architecture begins with the temple. And that the temple is intended to be a building that the god is looking out from the building to his wor- his or her worshipers. And so you get the classical construction of architecture such that there is the entablature, the triangular piece, and the columns. And it forms a face looking out from the building. And he builds from that into the rest of his argument about faces, that faces are what allow us to connect with each other as people and as persons, to argue that the building has a personhood that is expressed through its architecture. And he goes through and looks at modern architecture and its lack of any kind of framing columns, any lack of entablature that creates a forehead, anything that... So we go from a building that is mimicking the interaction of people to this faceless uh, mass building. And I read that. And then uh, a couple weeks later, I was in uh, either Chicago or New York City, somewhere that had a massive downtown. And I just looked up around me and realized that like every building was this huge towering skyscraper that was this behemoth of steel and glass as opposed to the small buildings of a small town downtown where I mean, not to say that like the local hardware store is a architectural masterpiece, but it's friendlier somehow than, than this massive construction of, of modern architecture that I, I, I've not been able to get away from that argument. I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. I think I'll add to that, Josh, one of the things that Scruton was really, uh, promoting often when when dealing with things like architecture and and uh, urban planning uh, was that uh, if again if you've been into London you get into some of the older parts of London and you walk around and you have a little you have a pub and then you have a little shop and then you have a little restaurant and a flower store and as you go through uh, the idea at least especially as you're walking 
is that you're doing as you're doing so you're creating a sense of community you're building relationship with people set over and against the very modern idea of the a very individualized life and if you think of that in comparison to the lives that so many of us live in America if we live in the suburbs Man, you wake up in the morning, you get in your car in your garage, you pull out, you go to work, you sit in a cubicle, you pick up your food at a window on the way home, pull in your garage, get back to your house by yourself, and you never interact with anyone. Where do we hang out at our homes if we go outside? Usually it's in the backyard with a big fence around it. So we're not even sitting out front and talking to our neighbors. And, and Roger Scruton was, was very much opposed to that kind of thing and instead wanted our cities to be planned in such a way that we're, we're walking around, we're seeing people, uh, we're engaged with them uh, to build community in the sense that we're a part of that. And as we're a part of that, we have something to contribute to that that is unique and that makes the city, makes the, the community exactly what it is as opposed to a, a group of individuals that have nothing to do with one another. And Nick, I think that's important for more than just the fact that you know living in community is essential to a human being's happiness. Uh, and, big part of Scruton's idea of conservatism is that government can't do what culture must do, right? Yeah, yeah. And whenever government tries to do it, we get all kinds of terrible results. And uh, so creating that integrated culture where there's pre-political loyalties and a shared vision, you know, shared values, uh, that's the sort of thing that we lose when our architecture uh, disintegrates communities and therefore makes our culture into something um, something individualized, customizable. Yeah, well said. Well, uh, any other thoughts on architecture before we move on to kind of a different area? I know that was a major focus on Scruton, but he wrote on so many areas. I think we ought to definitely touch on a few others. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add is, is, and I know we'll talk about beauty, but that is a part of the argument. that uh, Not just that the buildings are are useful, and not only they're useful, but they're they're able to be reused and they're resembling something of, of tradition in the past, but that they're beautiful and that it's not wrong uh, to focus on that and to create things that are objectively beautiful. And maybe we'll, maybe that's a good launching place for us to talk about the whole idea of beauty. I, I, I think it is. Cause I know one of the, in, in my high school classes, I, I never tire of asking the question of is beauty subjective or objective and my students invariably assert that beauty is always, in all cases, in the eye of the beholder. And now they can't really defend that, but we, we live in such an odd moment philosophically where it seems like these complete subject, subjectivity and relativism have just so won the cultural landscape that anybody who would hold to an objective notion of beauty, uh, you, you have such an uphill battle to make. And I... Uh, this, this may be a really odd thing to bring in here, but uh, I, I remember a few years ago the um, I think it was the Miss Universe pageant dropped the uh, the bikini contest, and that struck me as like, well, a I was like, well, you know, that's probably a good thing that we're not all ogling these women on TV. But on the other hand, like that was a there, there's an objective sense of beauty that's that's involved there, and there's a judgment based on objectivity there, right? In a yeah. in a probably a, a mostly negative well, way, but uh, that just struck me as a as a loss of obje an objective standard in some way. So with all that as kind of a framing bit, uh, what does Scruton have to show us about beauty and the nature of beauty and why we need beauty as human beings? 
Well, Josh, I think that, you know, Scruton was a philosopher, but he gave surprisingly little attention to what we might say is the ontology of beauty or the nature of beauty. Um, what exactly we mean when we talk about beauty as such. Uh, he only gave attention to that insofar as it justified what he really seemed to want to do, which was talk about the phenomenology of beauty, to parse our experience with the beautiful and the groundwork for that phenomenological study was, first of all, he wanted to establish that beauty is properly the subject of rational discourse. Yes, it depends on individual intuitions. Yes, it's grounded in personal experience, but nevertheless, it's analogous to uh, like the debates that we have about morality, that um, it is something that we can argue about productively, that our judgments about beauty can be wrong, they can be inordinate, they can be uh, mistaken, or they can be correct. They're not just irrational statements or statements about a person's own feelings. Um, but whenever he did talk about the phenomenology of beauty, I mean, I said earlier, he just had these profoundly cultivated sensibilities. And he seemed to think that we, we have lost this ability to have rational discourse about beauty. That's because we have faith in rational discourse about beauty. And because of that, he attributes to that um, our failure to receive our cultural inheritance, you know, that, that we have this vast and wonderful tradition of art and literature that is unknown to most people living in the West for all practical purposes. You know, they have such scant knowledge of you know, what is there, the beauty that's been created and preserved by prior generations. And uh, also he seemed to think that the reason why we can't seem to care for the environment without relying on some massive bureaucratic institution to do the work for us, which never succeeds in doing it, is because we have no real sense that we have an obligation to preserve the beauty of the natural world, future generations, as something that is essential to our humanity. And uh, again, it's it's foundational to his conservatism, his belief that beauty is properly the subject of rational discourse. It's something we ought to argue about. We have to think rationally about. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then uh, is it Scruton's argument that if we recover a stronger rational discourse about beauty, that would actually solve some, perhaps not all, but some of our environmental concerns, particularly like local pollution and, and trash and and disordered approaches to yeah. our own local environments. It, it would go a long ways toward doing that because that's the real motive that gets people to care for the world that they actually inhabit rather than this abstract, the planet, the environment, you know, what's the real work of preservation has been done by people who have a concrete particular place that they love and they take action on a local level to preserve it, to protect it, to promote its health and beauty. And he documents that thesis at length in his book. It's really fascinating. And he also documents how when we, we think in these abstract terms about saving the environment for the, you know, whether it's the economic purposes that it can be used for or whatever other reason, um, disaster. You know, we always work at cross purposes to what we really want, and we end up doing more harm than good. Yeah, I, I think he he even goes he goes even further uh, to say that uh, not only can we say and must say that uh, beauty is an objective thing, but that we have a we have a, a 
deep need for it. We need beauty. And, uh, and he points to uh, the, the, um, the cultural and moral decay of uh, a society that would say that uh, there is no need for beauty. And in fact, uh, there's, there's much a desecration of beauty, if you will, in, in much of what we see today. Uh, art in, in, uh, in its more modern iterations, and I don't mean modern in terms of an era of art, but uh, in more recent, I, I mean, uh, it, it has become ugly and, uh, and it doesn't really represent anything. And that whole idea of beauty being in the eye of the beholder is getting away from our intrinsic need. He says our need for beauty is not something that we could lack and still be fulfilled as people. It is a need arising from our metaphysical condition as free individuals seeking our place in a shared and public world. And uh, one of the ways I, I think about this is I think someone is not either not being honest or has a, a major deficiency in their soul. If they go to the grand Canyon and stand at the edge of the grand Canyon and look and just shrug their shoulders and say, it's just a hole in the ground. And if at the same time they could go to a landfill and look at the landfill and call it beautiful. Now, if you compare a landfill to the grand Canyon and you find one uh, and say in my mind, and I believe that, the landfill is beautiful and the Grand Canyon is not. There's a problem. There's a problem with your soul. And, uh, and you, have, you, are, you are lacking in something that makes you human. Uh, and, and I believe, I think Scruton believed, I think we all would agree on this, that this is, a, this is a need and desire that God has given to us because he is creative and he has created this world that we would look at and behold and see it as good and, and beautiful. And, uh, and in seeing that, that we would recognize it for what it is. Uh, and, and so I, I think that uh, much of what gets passed off as art today is just being very dishonest in saying that this is artistic for one and two, uh, saying that it is, is beautiful or useful when indeed it's not. And, and I think that's one of the very things that Scruton was after in, in detailing uh, what it means for art to be objectively beautiful. Uh, I think part of what we get when we when we uh, get to this place of objectivity with beauty is that there's a recovery of high culture as well. High culture now is is so much uh, uh, talked about in in ways that it's it's only people who are you know sort of snooty and too good for everyone else that would ever care about high culture. But high culture is is one of the very things that that preserves this idea of objective beauty. Uh, that we could hear Rachmaninoff's piano concerto number three and say objectively, it's beautiful. There's a reason why something like that can move us to tears if we've never heard it before. Uh, versus um, some, you know, a song by Maroon Five. Now, to try and compare those two, you may enjoy both of them, and that's fine. But to compare them and say that one is not objectively more beautiful than the other is a, a complete deficiency of the soul. And, and, uh, and very much exactly what uh, Scruton was after in, in arguing for objectivity and beauty. Nick, I think I that's really that's a really helpful uh, insight there. As uh, last night, I was rereading uh, the first section of uh, Lewis's Abolition of Man, and uh, he talks yeah. about uh, the difference between looking at a statement of value. Let's to keep your example going. Uh, Maroon Five is as good as Rachmaninoff. 
uh, to look at a statement of value like that. And some people look at that and they claim that all you ever say in a statement of value is your feeling about something. Right. And Lewis claims that's ludicrous because yeah. if, if we're really only talking about our feelings in that moment, that's not something that we can have rational discourse or debate over. Uh, instead, we can we could debate whether or not Maroon 5 is equivalent to Rachmaninoff in some objective fashion. We can't really debate our feelings about the thing. Uh, and that, your example about the uh, – that, that, that reminds me of a, a passage I wanted to read at some point during this uh, from The Soul of the World uh, where uh, Scruton suggests that the study of philosophy ought to – uh, cause us to appreciate these things more. It ought to cause us to see more in the world. That by studying philosophy, it's not that we just migrate to a place of pure objective critical na- critical stance where we uh, see that things are nothing but this, nothing but that. Uh, he writes, It's helpful at this point to register a protest against what Mary Midgley calls nothing buttery. There's a widespread habit of declaring emergent realities to be nothing but the things in which we perceive them. The human person is <coughs> excuse me. The human person is nothing but the human animal. Law is nothing but relations of social power. Sexual love is nothing but the urge to procreation. Altruism is nothing but the dominant genetic strategy described by Maynard Smith. The Mona Lisa is nothing but a spread of pigments on a canvas. The Ninth Symphony is nothing but a sequence of pitch sounds of varying timber, and so on. Getting rid of this habit is, to my mind, the true goal of philosophy. So it seems to me that he's suggesting there that really what philosophy ought to do is to help us instead see, like, oh, this thing is nothing but something. It ought instead help us see that this is so much more. There is so much more beauty to be heard, to be experienced in this world. So, Josh, in a you may have seen it. There was a talk between Roger Scruton and Jordan Peterson. And in it, they were talking about how the humanities has almost uh, become reverse of what it used to be. It used to promote all that was recognized by the culture to be good and beautiful and true. And now it's now generally humanities departments and universities across the Western world devote themselves to debunking, you know, all that, you know, all of that. And Scruton made the comment. He said, Something to the effect of, I, I can't wait for the day when instead of devoting ourselves to debunking, we get back to bunking explanations. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, uh, one, of, one of the things you're bringing up there, Josh, uh, uh, from, from Lewis's comments is so often what we hear, and I guarantee you hear it all the time with high school students, is everything that is said now is not I think or I believe, but I feel like. And and so many people would say, well, that's just a that's just a semantic issue. It's not a big deal, but it is a big deal because what we're saying is you can't disagree with me, you can't argue with me, you can't uh, you can't debunk as you as you said, Lane. You can't deal with my arguments because they're not arguments; they're feelings. I feel like whatever, and I always want to point out to people. That's not a feeling. What you just said is not a a feeling. It's a thought or it's a belief. And you have to register your thoughts, register your beliefs in uh, in the discourse so that we can uh, we can engage instead of just pulling back and saying, well, that's what I feel like. You do you. I'll do me. And and then there is no exchange of ideas whatsoever. Uh, That that's not helpful. It doesn't make progress. And and it's it, it just kind of cements us in our own 
ideas and, and never allows anyone inside to challenge us and to change us. I think you're I think you're onto something very important there, Nick, in part because when someone uses the language of I feel, there's a sort of immunity to discussion about whatever is then said about the feeling. Versus if I say I think this, well, any rational being can interrogate what I then say I think, because exactly. when we're dealing with thoughts, we're on a we're in an objective realm that we can all interact with, a sort of public space. When we're dealing with feelings, now we're feelings are and for anyone listening, especially if my wife is listening, please do. I don't want to be on record as saying I deny the legitimacy of feelings. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm sure, Nick, as a pastor, you're not saying that feelings aren't existent no. in any way. Uh, feelings do exist, but they're much more personal and they're they're much more intrinsic. They're different in nature. It's a confusion of categories to then say that feelings and thoughts are equivalent. And when we confuse those, we make significant mistakes, uh, right. We don't feel that two plus two equals four. <laughs> that is a thought. <laughs> that is yeah. a truth claim, and it is either correct or it is different. I might feel rage when I listen to Bernie Sanders talk. <laughs> That's not so much a thought, and in fact, my feeling might prevent thought about that for a little while. But those are two very different things, and I, I think Scruton is very helpful for helping us engage on that level. I think, Landon, you mentioned earlier the the uh, recovery of the rational when we're talking about beauty. We're getting out. It's, he's wanting to help us get beyond. I feel that this is beautiful to no. I see. I perceive the beauty there. And because I perceive that, I have an obligation to extend, to protect, to steward that beauty. Yeah. The analogy that he draws between um, our sense of beauty and our sense of our <laughs> moral obligations, I think, is really important because the objection to the rational treatment of judgments about beauty is always that those judgments are rooted in our personal experience. Uh, but so are all moral claims. We have these intuitions and experiences that lead us to make certain judgments, and then we can argue about them with each other, force each other to become consistent and to change our mind, show each other things that we might not have understood or seen before. Well, with that, let's let's shift to a different uh, different area of Scruton's thought. Um, we we so far all of our episodes are uh, are family friendly. We'll we'll see if this one keeps us at that rating or, or not. Um, I, I as I was pre- prepping for the for this episode, I found a couple quotes that do go into this territory. But I've not read much of what Scruton's written about human sexuality. Uh, but I know he has a whole volume on sexual ethics. Um, and uh, I've got one more quote that I want to get to at some point, but if either of y'all have read anything about what Scruton says about human sexuality, I'd love for to summarize Scruton's thoughts on that for us. Well, I, I don't, I haven't read his book, Sexual Desire, but what I, I do know, and he, he does touch on this in other places and essays and such, but um, interestingly, Scruton upholds sort of the, uh, the biblical morality of of sexuality but he as far as i know doesn't actually argue his point from a biblical perspective but more uh utilizes something of aristotle's uh doctrine of the mean from the nicomachean ethics that uh that there is there is such a thing as as lust and perversion and there is a proper sexual desire that we have to find the the golden mean of of sexual desire and uh, and so, really, what he ends up coming down to is a biblical perspective. I, I think that he would uphold 
uh, that he would have upheld the idea that um, that proper uh, sexual relationships are confined uh, to uh, to monogamous relationships uh, between uh, male and a female, uh, and and more particularly within within marriage, and and that comes down, if nothing else. Now, he, obviously, he was an Anglican, and so uh, he he was very supportive of the Church of England, uh, which I'm curious uh, to see. I, I, I'm actually curious to know where he went with that as the Church of England changed on a lot of these kinds of issues. But uh, but I, I think would be very much in favor of supporting um, uh, monogamous marital sexual relationships uh, between men and women that are heterosexual. Um, and, uh, and seeing that as something that is fundamental and important uh, to the preservation and uh, flourishing of culture. And if, if you think of Scruton, if there's one thing to think about Scruton, if you don't know much about him, it's that everything that he wrote about and thought about really came back to this central idea uh, of what is good and right for the preservation of, of culture. Uh, what, what is the best kind of culture and what can we do to preserve it or, or, um, or build upon it in such a way that we're not sort of undercutting uh, the good and the true and the beautiful, like we like to talk about in the humanities. So uh, as far as I understand what he believed about human sexuality, I, I really think he goes, he goes on to that. And, and really uh, I spoke about earlier him speaking out on things that, uh, that were very much unpopular and would have gotten him canceled. Uh, he did believe things like homosexuality were perversions uh, that, uh, that any, anything outside of a, a proper, heterosexual relationship would have been a perversion uh, that 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 degrades the individual but also degrades the culture around yeah i think that point is important that his sexual ethics were time and again rooted in his understanding of the conditions under which an integrated community with pre-political loyalties can exist and that means stable enduring marriages with children and that sort of thing uh, what some would call the the ideals of the traditional family. Well, that, that, that's, that's really helpful. And I think in part that that situates him as, in the same kind of vein. Uh, I know in a passage I was looking at earlier, he kind of narrates this. Uh, he, he sees the tradition moving in the direction where every society seems to codify both in law and in custom uh, sex as within marriage because that leads to the production of children and the transmission of property through discernible lines. And it's a very traditional case of like, here's how education works, here's how property transfer works, here's how building this over time works. The one passage I wanted to read on this, we'll move to a different question. Uh, this is in the, the Face of God. He has a section where he talks about, uh, it's, it's one of the places where he looks at his whole idea of faces here, of how the face is the key to each person recognizing another person. We recognize that in the face. And uh, I'm just going to read the passage. This comes from the chapter literally entitled The Face of the Person. He writes, In pornography, the face has no role to play other than to be subjected to the empire of the body. Kisses are of no significance, and even look nowhere since they are searching for nothing beyond the present pleasure. All this amounts to a marginalization, indeed a kind of desecration of the human face. And this desecration of the face is also a canceling out of the subject. 
Sex in the pornographic culture is not a relation between subjects, but a relation between objects. And anything that might enter to impede that conception of the sexual act, the face in particular, must be veiled, marred, or spat upon as an unwelcome intrusion of judgment into a sphere where everything goes. What I find really interesting about Scruton's uh, view is that he he actually finds this uh, traditional relationship of locating sexual desire inside the confines of this relationship. It's not constraining. It's not constricting. It's actually freeing for persons to pursue each other as persons. And in his analysis, at least, when we get outside of that, and particularly in the realm of pornography, that rather than it somehow creating new realms of freedom, what we actually see is a desecration of the body and the turning away and the dehumanization of the subject and moving the, the person from subject to object, which in any kind of Kantian analysis is clearly immoral. And, <laughs> uh, and, and also, obviously, in a biblical analysis is strongly immoral and violation of the Imago Dei. Yeah, the, the, uh, that's a very great points there, uh, Josh. And I think, um, contrary to popular belief, what he is saying is actually very much rooted in uh, the tradition of the Puritans. Um, people think Purit, Purit, you know, puritanical. They think that there are these prudish guys who never wanted to have fun. Well, that's not at all the case, actually. Uh, in fact, they were they were very uh, they wrote a lot about. Uh, about the sexual relationship within the confines of marriage and how it is to be something that is delighted in and enjoyed. And, uh, and what you're saying, and, and the, the very thing that, that Scruton was pointing to, uh, even in that passage that you read, was the things that God created uh, that were intended for enjoyment now lose their enjoyment. Uh, that really that really uh, caught my attention when he's saying you know that the the kisses are meaningless this is something this is a connection between two people communing between two individuals that is supposed to mean something it's supposed to bring about desire and pleasure and excitement and and when it loses that meaning uh, we've lost something of our humanity we've lost something of what god has given to us uh, to to be enjoyed and delighted in, um, and and that that is to bring us into deeper and greater communion, not only with this other individual, but with God Himself. And, and so we we lose we lose that sense of uh, this in itself being uh, being a way in which God has given us uh, to to commune uh, with another person and and with Himself. And and so I, I think that's so important that we understand that. Uh, as uh, being fundamental to recognizing how uh, we conduct our relationships with others. And as you were saying, to not uh, degrade a person uh, to such a level uh, that they are just nothing more than an object. Uh, They're nothing more than a, a thing to be used as opposed to a soul to be nurtured and cherished and loved. Well, it's the nothing buttery philosophy again. Our, our tendency to see things as nothing but something else. It's we see another body. Why not look at it? Why not engage in these actions with it? It's nothing but a body. It's nothing but an action. But in fact, it's an embodied person. Yeah, um, It's so much more than a body. It's so much more than an action. The significance, though it's not empirically observable, um, there's more to it than that. And he was keen to point that out. 
That's a great point, Landon. Uh, Nick, I'd also just uh, want to do a quick shout out to uh, two of the pastors at my church, uh, Nick Lingle and Tom Mercer. Uh, pastor Tom's our senior pastor and uh, Nick's our associate pastor. And they, uh, they both, they never tire of reminding us as a congregation that the Puritans are were actual real human beings who uh, actually had a lot more fun than the stereotype gets. And uh, they, the one story I'm thinking they, they love bringing up is that uh, years ago, Pastor Tom was doing research for a sermon and he ran across a record of a uh, Puritan council where um, this is, of course, back in day, the days of like uh, where church and state are like identical in early colonial Massachusetts. So this woman brings her husband up on charges in front of the town council for not joining her in bed. And... That literally, like, the town council is investigating whether or not this guy is sexually servicing his wife, as he has vowed to do in their wedding vows. And they found that he was had nods, and they then punished him for not joining his wife in bed. <laughs> First Corinthians 7. Uh, that's it. Well... There we go. Lest anyone say that the Puritans are boring people who didn't know how to have a good time. They, they, uh, yes, they, they, they did. Well, uh, I think we've, we've done a great job. I appreciate y'all joining me in uh, a wonderful discussion on the various areas of, of Scruton's thought. Uh, I want to see if we can kind of, as we begin wrapping this up, as we're, we're at, yep, we're at a good time for this episode. Uh, as we kind of start wrapping this up, I wonder if we could think together about in what something that one of you brought up at the beginning, uh, I think Landon, this was your thought, uh, in what way does Scruton set a model or an example for contemporary scholarship? Uh, all three of us are uh, at various levels looking to enter the world of scholarship, um, uh, but in what way does Scruton perhaps set us a, a good example? Well, First of all, I think I'm, I'm reminded of in C.S. Lewis's autobiography where he talks about philosophy being a subject. And Owen Barfield says to him, whoa, whoa, philosophy for Plato wasn't a subject. It was a way. Right. And Scruton, more than any academic philosopher that I can think of, really, really lived in accordance with the truths that he believed he had attained through philosophy. And um, there's I don't know all the details. I can't remember them at the moment, but he did spend a lot of time putting himself at great personal risk in order to propagate culture, that thing he believed in so much as being what will allow us to have these stable, enduring societies in which we can live these meaningful human lives. Um, he was, uh, um, and then also you, you talked about him having a wine column. I mean, he truly did it for the love. He wasn't getting any, uh, he wasn't getting any academic credit for that. <laughs> But nevertheless, he was he was truly serving the public in a, a profoundly learned man applying his great mental powers to a subject like wine, you know, something yeah. that people have enjoyed and something that can be abused in a way that's destructive of lives. And he, he showed us how to enjoy it well. And that's an important service to humanity as far as I'm concerned. Amen. Uh, and, and before I go pour myself a glass of wine and light up a cigar in honor of Sir Roger Scruton, I'll, <laughs> wait, I'll give you my answer to this question. I think w one of the things uh, that, that he did well uh, was to make sure that when he was engaging in any kind of uh, dialogue, whether it was debate or whether it was uh, if, if even an agreement, that he made sure that 
he understood something of the person that he was speaking to and their ideas. Uh, a lot of people, I, I think, don't even know about him. He studied the Arabic language so that he could read the Quran and so that when he read the Quran, he understood it in the way that someone who was Islamic would understand it so he could engage in these conversations with Muslims. Um, and, and especially uh, in the late 20th and early 21st century in, in England, that became more and more necessary and important if someone was going to engage in, uh, in public interaction in a place like London because uh, so much of, uh, of that large city has become um, uh, very Muslim. Uh, in terms of the population. And so he didn't want to just uh, repeat what he had heard from others, but he wanted to actually uh, get get into it as much as he could to understand it and to engage properly in uh, in the the dialogue and the debate. And I think one one of the things that frustrates me so much about many uh, many Christians specifically uh, who engage in uh, well, I shouldn't say engage that that say things about culture or what's uh, what's going on in public is that they don't properly engage. They don't try to understand ideas. They don't try to understand arguments. Uh, they just sort of fire off what they've heard in sound bites, like so much of the rest of the culture does. And as Christians, especially, I think we have an obligation to to know and understand something of uh, of what others uh, think and believe, so that we can uh, we can put forward um, a a robust defense of what is is right and true, as opposed to uh, being written off uh, as uh, intellectual lightweights because we haven't taken the time. Uh, we haven't uh, engaged our minds. And that's something that I think uh, Scruton uh, did far better than most ever have or ever will, is that he was willing to take the time to engage uh, his own mind in a way that made him a, a brute force in, uh, in the culture and uh, in, in the uh, conversation uh, outside of very tight circles where everyone already agrees with him. Uh, the fact that he could get a whole com- the, the whole city enraged about his being on this architectural committee says something about how uh, profound what he said and did was. If he was just a, a nothing who, who didn't really care about what people thought and how they thought about it, no one would care because everyone would write him off immediately and know that what he was saying was nonsense. And so I think uh, not just as intellectuals, uh, not just as scholars, but as Christian scholars – uh, we, we should be like Roger Scruton. We should be like a Francis Schaeffer in the ways that we engage ideas and try to know and understand something of what others think and believe so that we can engage properly and not just be written off as intellectual lightweights. Those are, uh, I love both of those answers. I look at Roger Scruton as uh, really a model in, in two ways. Uh, first being that uh, he he said I think he sets a great example of doing broad and very narrow research in to support his scholarship. As each of his things that I've read, and I've I've not read as much of him as I'd like. I've got Hat Face of God, Soul of the World, and his most recent book that I've read was uh, How to Be a Conservative, uh, which was incredibly good. It was I think it was very badly titled. Uh, it was provocatively titled, which is great for sales, but not great for uh, winning over people who are not already <laughs> conservatives. Uh, it was really about 10 different ideologies and how each of those ideologies is different from where he is on the, the uh, intellectual spectrum. 
Anyway, um, in all of his writings, he's clearly read across the entire tradition. And uh, every time I read anything by Scruton, I feel like I've mined a library and I now have a new assignment of books I need to go read. I feel very (laughs) ill-read every time I've read him. And at the same time, he doesn't suffer from some of the problems I've seen other folks suffer from. I, I, I learned, I realized I've always been a big proponent of broad liberal arts education. And yet you can't just stay on that level of always doing introductory courses. Um, I, I realized years, one of the reasons I was interested in doctoral education was I realized I need to sit under a teacher who is further ahead in this than I am. I need to be with people who are smarter than me and who can teach me stuff I could not figure out by myself. And Scruton is one of those people. He knows deeply the philosophical topics that he is writing about. He's not just, he hasn't just taken one or two classes on Kant. He's read everything Kant wrote. (laughs) And he understands Kant, which is amazing. So, but I think he shows us this great picture of like, here's very broad education, but also here's the narrow specific research done so that he can uh, authentically speak in an area and and be respectable when he does. Uh, The second area that I find him very remarkable, um, I'll be curious what you guys think about this, uh, is that when I look over the the broad scope of his life, it seems like he has a willingness to take allies wherever he can find them. Uh, he, he has initially he has a career that looks like it's a standard. He got a, a double first, whatever that means in the English ac- Academy in philosophy, and then went on to get a, a PhD in aesthetics. That he's a professor, but in 1990 he got the boot. Uh, he was no longer welcome in the academy, so he then went rogue, sort of, where he started speaking and writing. And he really rose to a position of fame and influence because he he wasn't trapped by the tenure-track mentality that the only way to have influence as a thinker is to have a big academic pedigree and have big-name professors who endorse your book and and you make 10 cents a copy that you sell and so on. He, He wasn't limited by that. And even as early as the uh, 1970s, he was at work creating an underground university in the USSR and lecturing there. And uh, then he, um, uh, in in his latter years, I was fascinated to see him uh, as a regular proponent and supporter of an Islamic liberal arts college, uh, Zaytuna College out in California. Uh, I just found that fascinating. Um, not because I'm particularly opposed to the, the religion of Islam, but it seems to stand outside of the general trajectory of Western Civ. Scruton didn't think so. He thought they were trying to do good liberal arts education, and they were not. He makes this distinction in his writing between Muslims and Islamists, where he would put the Islamists as the extremists who are committed to terrorist acts, but he thinks good Muslims are good people who are following their religious tradition. And he can work with them. He can support them. He can help work out ideas within their framework. In part, Nick, as you mentioned, because he's done the legwork to be able to speak authentically into that space. So I think he, uh, as uh, I, I see myself in a, not analogous to Roger Scruton, but certainly doing education kind of adjacent to the academy. Uh, my, my trajectory has been Hillsdale College and a Southern Baptist Seminary, and now a uh, non-traditional PhD in an online setting. <laughs> uh, and 
Scruton, I think, is very, I find him very encouraging because he shows us that doesn't mean that we're somehow locked out from influence and the ability to speak authentically if we do the work to do good scholarship. Yeah. 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 Well. Amen. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, okay. Well, let's wrap this up. I just want to, I've got two last questions for both of you. Uh, uh, one on, I want to, uh, uh, get your thought, y'all's thoughts on where you are in terms of dissertation. I know Nick, you're, you're. I think you're ahead of both Landon and I on that journey. Uh, and then I do want to <coughs> give you both a chance to talk about anywhere uh, people can follow your work online. I know Nick, you mentioned your show, Wrath and Grace Radio. I'd love for you to tell us about that in a moment. But before we get there, uh, thank you both so much for joining me on the show tonight. Uh, we're all engaged in this doctoral process. Uh, Landon, have you have you developed? Do you have ideas of where you want to go with your dissertation, or is that yeah. still far away? Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm a Cretan for even asking. I, I apologize yeah. if that's the case. Yeah, I'm certainly not to my dissertation yet, but I've been focusing all of my research on the writings of Owen Barfield. Um, for those of you who don't know who that is, he was one of the best friends of C.S. Lewis and the one who uh, some people say is the real genius at the back of the Inklings. Not that they weren't all real geniuses, but the maybe the most original, um, the progenitor of their distinctive brand of thought, if you will. And um, I'm going to, I'm going to try to write a fairly technical dissertation on his writings. And then after that, produce a book, that will be a whole lot less technical that will help people who want to get into his work because it can be frustrating and dense and difficult at times. That's fantastic. I, I know uh, he did a lot with the theory of language, if I remember correctly. And I, I, I look forward to seeing what you come up with about that. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, how about you? I know you're in, uh, you're in dissertation stage, right? I am, yeah. Been uh, been writing for a while now. My dissertation uh, title is "Critical Theory: Postmodernism and the West's Embrace of Marxism," and so my um, my argument is that uh, the the uh, the philosophies, the ideas of critical theory and postmodernism, uh, both uh, European uh, in origin, uh, came into America specifically in uh, the '60s. And uh, although they have uh, disagreements among them, there is enough in common between them, uh, and that that meeting place uh, is uh, is Marxism, and uh, that uh, as a result of these influences philosophically in the various institutions of Western civilization, uh, they have uh, they have been effective in uh, in influencing the ways that we think and interact and uh, and do. Uh, and do education and do business and, and do politics uh, and uh, with with the the stated goal of advancing uh, the ideals and the uh, the political philosophy and cultural philosophy of marxism so uh, that's that's where i'm at that's what i'm working on um, uh, i think uh, hopefully um, done within the next couple of months here and then uh, hopefully to turn that into something a little more, as Landon said, a little more uh, um, uh, on the popular level so it's a bit more digestible uh, for people in an area that I'm trying to get into uh, the practical outworkings of these things uh, in in all the various institutions and and my uh, specific concerns within the church as well. So. Oh, fantastic. I know that is definitely an area where there, there needs to be a lot of work done. I'm, I'm glad to hear you're doing that. 
We've uh, we've encountered. Uh, uh, I'd heard about this, but I'd not actually run into it. But uh, this year, my team uh, competed at the Harvard debate tournament. Uh, back in February, and uh, we encountered the reality that an awful lot of national circuit competitions make a great amount of use of critical theory and uh, to to run their cases. So that's uh, it. It becomes I, I think it's incredibly destructive to debate as an activity. Uh, it's also just, critical theory is pretty destructive in most places where it in, it's encountered. Uh, I do think they. I, it's another place I I have this. Mostly hate a little bit of love relationship with uh, Karl Marx because I think he raises some really interesting questions. I think that can be said for a lot of the critical theory thinkers. It's just the answers that are absolutely terrible. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I, uh, I don't, I don't know if I could ever say that about Marx, but you are right. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he does, uh, he does uh, raise important questions, especially in the context of his time. Yeah, uh, I, I have an inner Marxist that I try to stuff down very, very deep inside. It tends to try come out sometimes. <laughs> usually when I see myself as the proletariat and someone has told me what to do, that's usually the time. Yeah. <laughs> I need to repent of pride and, and pray for the ability to submit rather than framing it in a Marxist dialectic. <laughs> well, uh, gentlemen, where can our listeners follow your work online? What, what other kinds of uh, digital presence do you all have? I don't have much of an online presence, really. <laughs> Maybe I should get to work on that. Ah, well, you're welcome back on the show anytime, and we'll we'll be happy to host you anytime you want to come talk about stuff, Landon. <laughs> uh, mine, uh, social media, all the regular places on uh, Twitter, pretty active. It's at k e n n i c o n. Um, I write regularly for Reformation 21 online magazine for the Christward Collective and for Ligonier. Um, also, I mentioned before, my, uh, I'm a co-host on the Wrath and Grace radio podcast. We put out about three episodes a week. You can subscribe to that and all the regular podcast uh, hosts. Uh, you can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and then also we are on DirecTV, NRB TV on Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern for 30 minutes. So uh, those are some of the places where my stuff is uh, here and there. And like you, Josh, uh, various uh, journal articles or, you know, whatever all over the place. So just search the name and you'll find something. <laughs> Ah, that, that's right. Uh, they all tend to sprawl after a while. Yeah, exactly. Well, gentlemen, thank you again for a wonderful conversation. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on this bonus episode of What's the Res? Uh, my guests today are Landon Lofton and Nick Kinnicott. And we have uh, been discussing uh, the uh, knighted and uh, now deceased Sir Roger Scruton and his ideas. Uh, we hope this has been beneficial to you. Uh, if you'd like to let us know how you think about this episode or how you feel about this episode, we'll take uh, – I'd love to get reviews or emails or comments. Flames are welcome if you want to send us those. Uh, just know that uh, if you flame us and are illogical about it, uh, I probably will make fun of you on the next episode. But you can reach out to us at, over email at whatstherez at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash whatstherez. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit with the handle at whatstherez underscore. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, work hard, speak well, and seek the truth. Mahoney,